Well, it's been some time since we were last in James. So it would be a good idea for us to just remind ourselves of what we have learned so far. Firstly, the authorship of James. Scripture introduces us to more than one person with the name James. But the James who wrote the letter before us was none other than the leader of the Jerusalem church during the time of the persecution of believers in Jerusalem. This, of course, is the persecution that came about as a result of the stoning of Stephen that we read about in the book of Acts. So even after many believers had fled and been scattered abroad, James still continued to shepherd them by way of his letters. Recall also that this James is the biological brother of Jesus. So we shouldn't confuse him with the other two Jameses who were both only disciples of Jesus. I think this fact about James being the biological brother of our Lord will become somewhat significant as we study this portion of text tonight. Now the major theme, theme rather, throughout James thus far has been the genuineness of a person's faith being seen in their actions or behavior. The genuineness of a person's faith being seen in their actions or behavior. James knows that the Christian life is challenging, and so he began his letter by exhorting his audience to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let this steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we see James begin to make this connection between people who believe and steadfastness or continuing in the faith. This comes up more clearly down in verse 12 of chapter 1, which says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So the ones who are blessed with eternal life are the ones who remain steadfast, or the ones who continue in the faith, or the ones who do the word of God. And speaking about doing the word of God, this becomes an explicit command down in verse 22 of chapter 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And then we have verses 26 and 27, which will be very relevant for our study tonight, saying, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James wanted us to know that there is such a thing as worthless, impure, and defiled religion. There is such a thing as fake or counterfeit faith that does not save. The point being that if you call yourself a Christian, there must be evidence of the salvation that you claim to have. There must be proof that the faith that you claim to have is genuine and not counterfeit. And this evidence is seen in and through your actions and how you live your life. 
And more specifically for us tonight, through the things that you say. So in all these things, we can see why James focuses so heavily on what we can call practical Christianity. Christianity in practice. Inward faith that is lived out and seen through outward action. This is why chapter 2 taught us that genuine believers do not practice or make it a way of life to show partiality in favor of the rich while discriminating against the poor. And chapter 2 ends with the famous statement that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, the main idea being that genuine faith and trust in Jesus Christ naturally produces the fruit of good works in the life of the believer as the Holy Spirit works in the heart of the truly saved person. Once again, James' assertion is that good works and righteous living provide evidence that someone has truly believed and has been saved. This is why James' letter is so practical in its teachings. This is why James spends so much time dealing with matters of behavior. It's because James knows that those who sin as a matter of practice and habit and those who favor the rich and despise the poor, and those who boast in their riches, those who are quick to anger, those who fight and quarrel and slander others, and those who let their tongue run wild to spout evil all day long, these people are not displaying the fruit of genuine salvation, and so are very likely still dead in their sins. So that was our brief recap for tonight. Tonight, here in chapter 3, James zeroes in on this issue of uncontrolled speech. Remember that he briefly touched on it at the end of chapter 1. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Again, if you call yourself a Christian, but you routinely and habitually use your tongue to speak evil, then you are lying to yourself. You have not really repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as Savior. This is James' whole point. And he actually sums it up at the end of the portion of text that we're studying tonight. Down in verse 9 of chapter 3. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. If, as a matter of habit and practice, you let your tongue run wild and you don't control the things that you say while calling yourself a Christian, you are deceiving yourself. The mouth that continually speaks wickedness is not a mouth that is in keeping with the righteousness of Christ. Now I know it looks like I have skipped over a bunch of verses to get to this point. I went all the way down to verse 9. But I'm saying this to you first and foremost because I want your minds to be oriented correctly as we go through what James has to say. Because we might see the subject matter and think that the taming of the tongue isn't really a big deal. I mean, it isn't, isn't this just a sermon about not saying naughty words? Maybe we can afford to tune out this Sunday. But no, friends, we must never tune out the Word of God. 
We need to take this seriously. The matter of the control of the tongue is deadly serious. It is both physically deadly and spiritually deadly. Put plainly, your tongue and the things you say using your tongue could have the power to kill both you and others. And your tongue, if it is not kept in check, could send both you and others into eternal damnation. Your tongue can set the course of your life down a path that leads to hell. So make no mistake about this. You play with a wild tongue the same way that you play with a wild venomous snake. If you play with it and you fail to take it seriously, it will kill you. So friends, let's get this straight. We're dealing with a serious matter. So with that said, let's begin. The wild tongue is deadly. Why is that? Let's go back to verse 1. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now James does not mean to give us an extended teaching on the specific matter of who should and should not become a teacher of the Bible. Now if someone wanted to preach such a sermon, they could certainly use this verse to help them do so. But James doesn't intend to make this section specifically about the matter of a man's qualifications for gospel ministry. That isn't the purpose of this opening statement. Rather, it simply serves as a primer for what he really wants to talk about. That is, of course, the dangers of the unchecked tongue. Let me give an example. Suppose I want to talk to you all about the importance of eating healthy. But I started by saying, you know, you really shouldn't believe everything you see on TV because advertisers often lie to sell their products. Now, I don't intend to make it my whole point to talk about big corporations and their deceptive practices. I merely use that opening statement to say that we need to be careful about what we eat. And then I will continue talking about nutrition and good eating habits and cooking practices and so on. Something like that is what is happening here at the start of James chapter 3. So when James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, the point is not about who should and shouldn't teach the Bible. Rather, the point is to show us that the tongue is of such power and consequence that it can have serious consequences, especially for men who seek to teach the Bible. Why is that? Those who teach will face greater scrutiny and judgment because those who teach will have used their tongues to directly influence the lives of other people instructing them in matters of righteousness and obedience to God. Those who teach will have used their tongues either to lead people to do good or to lead people to do evil. There are many, sadly, who in the judgment will have much blood on their hands because of the evil that they encouraged other people to do by their teaching. So again, I won't spend any time tonight focusing on who is and who isn't qualified to teach the Bible, and who is and who isn't qualified for gospel ministry. That's not the point. The point is, see how powerful and significant the tongue is. See how with it, one can sway others either for good or for evil, and with it, one can incur greater wrath upon oneself by way of things said. Beware of the power of the tongue. The point is, that though the tongue is small, it is extremely powerful. 
though the tongue is small, it can have major impact on both the physical life and the spiritual life. And listen carefully to this. Though the tongue is small, what you do with it shows what kind of person you are on the inside. What you do with it will determine where you spend eternity, whether in heaven or in hell. So with James' main point about the power and significance of the tongue in mind, we see that he continues from verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Listen, the power of the tongue is so great that it is able to control the body. James is teaching that the man who is able to perfectly control the tongue and is able to not stumble or sin with regard to speech is therefore able to perfectly control the body and not stumble or sin with the body. And this sounds incredible. I mean, can the tongue really control the body? Is this really what James is saying? It is. Look at what he says in verses 3 to 4. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their bodies as well. Verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So this is an excellent analogy for what James is explaining. Can the tongue really control the body? Yes. Just as control of the horse's mouth gives the rider control over the horse's body, the tongue in your mouth exerts control over your body. But someone may say, but the tongue is so small and insignificant. No. James invites us to consider the ships. They are enormous and yet are guided by a relatively small rudder. So yes, James really is saying that the tongue, the small body part, has the power to control the body. But I know what most of you are thinking. This sounds strange, doesn't it? When we think about the control of the body, we tend to think about the mind or the heart as having that power. So saying that the tongue has the power to control the body sounds very strange. So how are we to understand this? Well, recall earlier that I said that the James who wrote this letter was the biological brother of our Lord Jesus. And I said that will become somewhat significant later. Well, to help us understand James' teaching on the power and significance of the tongue, it will be helpful to understand where his teaching comes from. And I think it's clear that it comes directly from his big brother, Jesus. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would have been like to have Jesus himself as your big brother. Imagine what it would have been like to grow up in the same household with him, and to do chores with him, and play with him, and sit at the dinner table with him, and all these things that siblings do together. It becomes easy to see that Jesus would have taught his siblings scriptural concepts as he grew up with them. Just by way of his closeness of relationship to them and the circumstances that naturally arise. And we know that Jesus loved to teach the scriptures and to talk about scriptural things. After all, this is the Jesus who was a young boy was found teaching in the temple in Jerusalem in the incident where his parents could not find him. So no doubt James would have picked up a few things from his elder brother over the years. 
as Jesus' wisdom and light naturally came out in the conversation of everyday life. If this is true, we would expect to see evidence of this. We could expect to see similar teaching from both James and Jesus. And that's exactly what we see. Read again what James says in verses 11 and 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can the salt pond yield fresh water. Who does that sound like? Turn with me briefly to Luke chapter 6, verses 43 and 44. Luke 6, 43 44. What does our Lord Jesus say here? He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. It's the same teaching. James has, of course, made it his own in that he has added the illustration of salty sea water and fresh rain or spring water to the lesson. But the core elements from his older brother are still present in the illustration of fruit-bearing plants and thorn bushes. So how does this help us tonight? Well, since we can see that James is drawing on the ideas of his brother, whom he had, whom he had since come to know as both Lord and Christ, we can go to Jesus' teaching for help in understanding what James is teaching. James has asserted that the tongue has the power to control the body. And then, later, in writing about the way we use our tongues, he uses Jesus' teaching about knowing the genuineness of something by its fruit. Okay? So look again at Luke 6. This time from verse 45. Jesus says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So there we see the connection. Jesus teaches us that there is a direct link between a person's heart and their tongue. This connection means that whatever is in your heart will come out of your mouth. If there is rampant wickedness in your heart, you will speak all kinds of wickedness with your tongue. And if there is goodness in your heart from Christ, you will speak righteousness with your tongue. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus is helping us to understand James. Now we can see exactly what James means when he asserts that controlling tongue gives one control over the body. James is not saying that the tongue somehow becomes the seat of control for your body. That honor still belongs to your heart, or properly speaking, your mind. However, because of this direct link between heart and tongue, the two work together to control the body. Or to put it another way, the two work together to control the course of your life. This is what James is explaining when he uses the analogy of horses with bridles in their mouths. A bridle is a piece of equipment that is made up of straps that fit around a horse's head. And more significantly, a bit, which is a relatively small metal or wooden rod that goes into the horse's mouth. And so when the bridle, made up of the straps and a bit, is pulled on by way of a rope or reins, 
The horse, feeling the tug of the pressure in its mouth, is compelled to turn either to the left or to the right. The course of the horse is changed. So your heart or your mind is like the rider of the horse. Your heart is the seat of control for everything that you do. And your tongue in your mouth is like the bit in the horse's mouth. The course or direction of the horse is set by the bit in its mouth. And listen, the course or direction for your whole life is set by the tongue in your mouth. Go back again to James 3 verses 5 and 6. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Listen, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. If you thought that the tongue was a small and therefore insignificant part of your body, Friends, think again. Let's let Jesus help us once more. Matthew 15, Matthew 15 verses 18 to 20. Listen. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So if you want to see what is inside the heart of a person, look at what comes out of their mouth. And if you want to know the trajectory of a person's life, if you want to know what course their life is on, whether it is headed toward eternal life with God or headed towards eternal damnation in hell with the ungodly, look at what comes out of their mouth. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, this is the sense in which the tongue controls the body. The wicked man out of the evil of his heart speaks evil, and his words defile him and sets his life on a path of sin that leads to death. Again, Jesus helps us in Matthew 12, verses 33 to 37. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Listen to this. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Friends, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, but your mouth is full of evil, if it is full of gossip and lies and slander and cursing and reviling and profanity and obscenity, then it shows that your heart, far from being washed and redeemed, is still dead in sin. As James said back in chapter 1, if your tongue has not been bridled, and under control, you are deceiving yourself, and the faith that you have is fake and therefore worthless. If you are allowing your tongue to turn the course of your life toward hell, then you really need to take its consequences seriously. You need to take the power of words seriously. I think most of us are familiar with the proverb that says, 
Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, of course, there are some who believe that this proverb teaches that we mere humans have the power to speak things into reality. So they take this text in a supernatural sense. In reality, this is a pagan idea. It's not a biblical idea. In modern times, this idea is known as the law of attraction. It's the idea that by your thoughts or words, you can attract good things to yourself that will supernaturally materialize into your life. You can imagine if someone says something negative like, today is going to be a hard and exhausting day. Well, someone who believes in the law of attraction might reply, no, don't speak that over your life. I'm sure we've all heard that at some point. The idea being that if you think negative thoughts and make negative affirmations with words, then you will cause bad things to happen to you. You will create that reality. But if you think positive thoughts and make positive affirmations with words, you can do the opposite and supernaturally cause events in your day to play out just the way you want them to. Well, know that the Bible does not teach that human beings have this power. The proverb about life and death being in the power of the tongue does not teach that. Our words don't have power in a supernatural sense. On the other hand, God's words certainly do. God literally created the world with words. The universe and all their hosts. God spoke the heavens and the earth were established. When Jesus returns, he will literally slay his enemies with words. Jesus is the word. So of course, God's words have supernatural power. But ours merely have natural power. Even so, we ought not to scoff at this natural power that our words have. Our words, even if only in a natural sense, can have great weight and power and influence. Just think of a king or prime minister. Their words can move armies or cause economies to crash. Words. For them, the proverb about life and death being in the power of the tongue is really seen to be true. By decree of a king or a magistrate or a judge, a person can be sentenced to death or have their life preserved. Now it's easy to make that case with great rulers. But what about everyday people? Do your words have power? Sure, you may not be able to affect a whole nation. But what about the people around you? With a false accusation made with the tongue, you can ruin another person's reputation. Think of the turmoil that you can cause with just a few words whispered into someone's ear. You know, I heard so-and-so did X, Y, and Z. Just like that, you can ruin someone's life and destroy their livelihood. Your tongue can be that little flame that starts a huge fire. Perhaps even inciting a mob against a person or a group of people that literally gets them killed. That can happen from mere words. Likewise, words of recommendation and praise can propel careers or increase someone's status. Even in the case where an angry mob is stirred up, the right words can calm them down. Don't the Proverbs also say that a soft answer turns away wrath? It's talking about words. And parents, do you recognize that your words have power? 
It may not seem that way when you're constantly telling your children to behave and they won't listen, but jokes aside, mothers, imagine telling your son you're worthless just like your father. Those aren't just words. Those are weapons. Those are weapons with which you can cause serious wounds. Wounds that may never heal. And fathers, imagine never telling your daughter that you love her or that she was precious to you. The emotional and mental scars that come from a lack of words are also serious. You know, we say things like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. We need to realize that that is not true. Sure, I think we can all understand where that sentiment comes from. We can understand the problems caused by people who are overly sensitive to the words of others. Ideally, we shouldn't be the kind of people who fall apart every time we are faced with harsh or unkind words. Ideally, we should have enough confidence in who we are as children of God that harsh words don't affect us that much. So of course, we know that sometimes people can be too sensitive. But we should not take this to mean that there aren't times where people are justifiably and understandably hurt by words. Or that we can say anything we want to people without regard for what we say and the manner in which we say it. We mustn't go to the extreme of thinking that words have no power to cause serious emotional and mental wounds. You know, most of you might not know this, but I broke my left arm twice when I was a boy. First at the elbow, and then at the wrist. I barely notice it today. It literally does not affect my life, and I've had bones broken. But I can still remember things that were said to me as a boy. Things that were said to hurt me, that still affect me to this day. And I know that many of you have similar experiences. So you really can alter the course of your life and the course of the lives of others with your words. So from emotional and mental hurt all the way to physical hurt, words have real power and significance. And therefore, the tongue has real power and significance. Remember what Jesus said. People will be judged not only on what they have done, but on what they have said. In that sense, words are works. And we will be judged according to the works of our hands and feet, yes, but also according to the works of your tongue. So now, having heard of the tongue's power and significance, you may be rightly concerned over your own tongue and whether or not you have it under control. You may be rightly concerned about what your speech says about your spiritual state. So you may be ready to run into the fields and capture that wild mustang that is your tongue and put a bridle on it. Well, let me tell you this. In and of yourself, you will have an easier time literally capturing a wild horse than you will in taming your tongue and controlling your speech. James says from verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting the, and setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So you may be able to tame, train, and control lions and killer whales and snakes, you name it. But you alone cannot tame your tongue. James says that the tongue sets the entire course of life on fire. And listen, the tongue itself is set on fire by hell. Friends, the tongue is no mere beast, but it is one that is empowered by the diabolical forces of Satan himself. Satan, who is the great tempter, comes alongside men and women to stoke the fires of evil already raging in their hearts. There is literally satanic power and force behind the evil of the tongue. <clears throat> Jesus, in rebuking the Pharisees in John 8, says to them, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. <coughs> so the tongue, when it spouts lies and deceit, is doing so empowered and inflamed by the father of lies. Satan, the devil. So again, as you think about your mouth or your speech or your tongue, do not underestimate its power and the power of he who leads the whole world astray. You have to know what you're up against. So since the untamed tongue is empowered by supernatural evil, you need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to tame it and keep it in check. That's the point of all of this. James isn't warning us of the danger of the unchecked tongue only to tell us ultimately that there's nothing we can do. We aren't just doomed to have it set the course of our lives down a path of sin toward destruction. No, of course not. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings hope and not despair. So you may not be able in and of yourself to control the beast that is your tongue, but God can. You may not be able to resist Satan in and of yourself, but God can. Remember, the matter of the tongue is ultimately a matter of the heart. I'll say that again. The matter of the tongue is ultimately a matter of the heart. And who changes hearts but God? Who cleans and washes hearts but God? Who changes stony, dead hearts to hearts of flesh that beat in tune with God's will? Who but God alone? Brothers and sisters, we serve a God who changes hearts through the message of the gospel. He removes the filth of wickedness and fills our hearts instead with the treasure of righteousness. So that out of this treasure, you may speak righteousness and show to all the genuineness of your salvation. That you may show to all the goodness and love of the God who saved you. So that by way of the righteous words that you speak, your life may be set on a path of goodness and light. All to the glory of God. All as you speak words that build up and encourage. 
as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that lift the spirit and bring joy. And of course, as you use your tongue to spread the gospel. Friends, listen. If the feet of those who spread the gospel are beautiful, then how much more are the tongues of those who spread the good news? Don't you realize the, the honor and privilege it is to be able to use your tongue to spread the gospel? I said that before God used words to create the universe. That was a miraculous event. But listen, we, through our words, get to, in some small part, play a role in a miraculous creation event. When we as vessels and messengers of the truth get to speak that sacred message that creates new hearts within the convert. That sacred message that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with, was with God and the Word was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's the sacred message that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, this message, this gospel, ought to be what occupies our tongues. We ought to devote our tongues to speaking these words of life. Never forget, brethren, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, his words will bring healing to his people who have believed in his name. But to his enemies, his very words will slay them. And then sin and death will be no more. Brethren, this is the good news that we carry on our lips. And it is this good news and the things connected to it that ought to fill our mouths. We ought to be employing our tongues toward the good things that pertain to the gospel. As Paul says to the Ephesians, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We need to control our tongues and speak as those who have new hearts, as those who not only know that the gospel is true, but show that the gospel is true by how we live our lives and by what we say. We must show that this gospel transformation that we're always talking about has actually taken place within the heart. This is why James cautions us from verse 9, and we've come full circle now. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Brethren, in the same way that you can't go to a mango tree and harvest apples, you can't be a true follower of Christ who curses, reviles, and hates other people. In the same way that you can't dip your cup into the sea and pull out fresh drinking water, you cannot look into a mouth filled with lies and slander and sinful boasting and hatred and find a heart that is occupied by the Holy Spirit. These things cannot be. 
I've said this more than once in this series in James, but I will remind you again of the words of John. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The words of John. Friends, again, we need to take seriously the work of our tongue. The fires that it can start. The poison that it can spit. The evil path down which it will take us if we let it run free. So as you go from here today, Think on these things and think of how you can employ your tongue toward truth and life. Toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speak words that build up and let not any deceit be found in your mouth. Brothers and sisters, let it be seen by what you say what is in your heart.